Hello and welcome to Don't Do Things The Way I Do, the podcast about mistakes. I'm Tim Smith, but more importantly, my guest in this final episode of Series 1, or Season 1, depending where in the world you are and how old you are, is Andy Payne. Um, Andy um, is a major part of the British video games industry. In fact, Andy has been a major part of the video games industry in the UK since it was old enough to have parts. Andy's had successful companies and Andy's had failures, um, all of which he'll talk about. He's also vehemently anti-Brexit. So if you're not, it's probably worth a listen, just to get the other side of the story. So, off we go and over to Andy. Hello, I'm Andy Payne, uh, and I have worked all my life in video games. Making video games, Andy? Making video games, publishing video games, developing video games, marketing video games, playing video games. Going back to, going back to when? You're a young man, Andy. I'm young. So going was back, when, when did we start in video games? I started in the video games uh, business in 1985, uh, so it was early doors to say the least. Just a bit. Although some particular pedanty people are going to start saying, well, I think you'll find the first video game is 1969. They probably will. I think next year is 40 game, forty games, 40 years of video games, I believe. Right. And you've uh, always been in the English, British video game industry, not Japan or the States or... Um, good question. Uh, interestingly, from, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, uh, uh, I've always seen video games pretty global in other words um pretty much from the get-go games were sold if not licensed around the world anyway and my career started really with helping people um on the kind of manufacturing distribution fulfillment they used to call it one-stop shopping stuff mm-hmm. and as a result of that um we did a lot of international business and that was uh kind of back then you didn't really realize uh how difficult it was because you kind of dealt with it um and how it's become a lot easier over the years right Um, let me stop you there because from the sound of it andy andy Payne, you've never made a mistake in your life have you i've never made a game never made a mistake never made a mistake well uh, I, I I measure mistakes on a weekly basis. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, I mean, I could be pedantic and say it's daily, but yeah, mistakes are part of life, aren't they? Um, I think there are some fairly big mistakes I've made, mm. and some small ones. But big are are specifically, I think, staying in businesses too long, um, which is counterintuitive to a lot of people. Um, and not what, what a lot of people want to hear, but there is a point at which any business is at its most vulnerable and its most opportune. Um, and it's difficult to know that point. Um, but if you look at businesses as living beings, they will have stages of their lives and they will come to the, to the end one day. Mm. Um, and I think we see that pretty much every day of our life. I don't know when Facebook or Google or Apple you know, when their days come. But um, you can kind of see it, actually, with, with, with organisations like Facebook. You could see the end of Facebook, and it could be very, very quick. I doubt it, but it could be. But getting back to my mistakes and staying in too long, specifically, and most recently, that was with Mastertronic, which right. was uh, the most difficult part of my professional life, even probably my personal life. That a was quick, a big quick, breakup. Quick sketch of um, of Mastertronic for people listening who who uh, don't know about video games. So Mastertronic was one of the oldest brands in um, in computer games, as we used to call them before they were called computer and video games. Um, and Mastertronic was founded by a guy called Frank Herman and a guy called Alan Sharon um, and a guy called Martin Alper. And they that business was bought by Sega way back in the uh, Master System uh, days, uh, before the Mega Drive was released. So we're going back to the sort of mid to late 80s. Mm. 
Uh, I had a company called The Producers. We were a, a, a fulfillment specialist, worked with loads and loads of great games companies like what, what, Interplay. Put some names to games, because yeah, I think so, people so now, even worked, if they haven't played, will recognise game names. Worked, worked on Sim, all of the SimCity games, so right. all of the Maxis games, all of the Interplay um, Star Trek games. Interestingly, uh, a game called Lost Vikings, which mm. was then by a company called Blizzard. They then dabbled with a thing called Warcraft. They did three versions of that, and the rest is literally history for those guys in a good way. Um, worked with Bethesda when they were distributed. Worked with LucasArts, so that's Monkey Island, Secret Monkey Island. That's One George Lucas from, from Star Wars. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, LucasArts were George Lucas, in fact. Um, and then worked with uh, the guys at Virgin, you know, Command and Conquer. Um, sensible software, you know, as in sensible f uh, soccer, mm -hmm. uh, cannon fodder, um, uh, system three, the way of the uh, not the way of the exploding fist. That was Melbourne House worked on that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but Last Ninja worked one and two with System Three. Okay, um, so a whole bunch of successful games, a whole and of successful and a, and a, and a load of really crap games as well. Yeah, you know, well, those were the times, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I remember back then into, uh, reviewing um, the, the first Interplay Star Trek game and being quite impressed with it because there had been a whole bunch of shite out around that period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, Mastertronic, and, and you, you, you so, said before so I interrupted you, it was, a, it was a nasty breakup. Yes, it was. And, and what, what it was was Mastertronic was kind of revived as a brand in 2004 by me and the guys who ran Sold Out. And we put Sold Out and the producers together and we bought the name Mastertronic off Sega uh, in fact, Frank Herman rather brilliantly bought it for us. He was the original uh, owner, part owner. He bought that back and we relaunched it. And we wanted to get into value publishing. Value means uh, low cost, low price. Um, and we did a pretty good job um, for a number of years, actually. And then the financial crisis hit us. Um, and it kind of hit a lot of games companies, but... Let's just make it really clear at the beginning. The financial crisis was nothing to do with the demise of Mastertronic. The financial crisis hit in 2007, 2008, and we died as a company in 2014, fully six years after that. So quite a long time in, um, in retrospect. So um, the reason that we got ourselves into a terrible mess was because we were primarily in the packaged good physical goods business ah. and we primarily worked with um on pc we had delved into the console with ps2 with a ps2 range which was frankly a complete disaster and, and highly expensive um we got into ps2 as the world were getting out of ps2 that was uh, terrible timing um, but we were still predominantly a business that uh, that sold goods in boxes and predominantly sold those into companies like Game, um, who, by the way, went bust on us, owed us quite a lot of money before they, they came back again, um, and companies like the supermarkets in the UK, Sainsbury's, Tesco's and Asda. And for anybody who ever wants to deal with those people, just be fucking careful, frankly, because... Those supermarkets do not care about their supply chains one iota. Um, and then we also <laughs> dealt with Woolworths. And, of course, they were a, an old name but uh, a big name, and they, they failed abysmally um, around about the 2008 mark when they uh, kind of went out of business. So we had a lot of stock out there, um, UK and internationally, principally in Europe, and a lot of that stock is what is referred to as being sold on sale or return. In other words, you manufacture it. As you go into console manufacturing for, for software, it costs you a lot of money. You have to pay a lot of money up front to the, to the platforms. That's PlayStation, Xbox, and Nintendo. Um, and you have to basically lend that stock to the retailers who will then tell you what they've sold or, more hilariously, tell you what they haven't sold and then um, let you know that they're not going to pay you mm. what you'd agreed because they had to sell the price at a lower rate in order to sell it through. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, we could talk for hours on that. That's kind of standard procedure, pretty much, for how these these global uh, chain stores work, frankly. And there's no way around that. Mm -hmm. Now, I has all, I've always been an advocate of digital. Uh, one of my other businesses, Just Flight, which is a flight sim and train sim specialist, 
Uh, we actually figured out how to deliver uh, our software by direct download in 2004. Right. And there were two companies that sort of figured that out. One was called Just Flight, which I'm very proud of, and one was called Valve. Okay. Uh, kind of slightly different now. In uh, Just Flight still exists and it still does very well, but Valve is one of the uh, you know the behemoths, the, the gargantuan behemoths of, yeah. the, of the games industry, and a lot of developers would be nowhere without the uh, wonderful work of Valve, and specifically Steam. Mm -hmm. Do you want a quick um, explanation of Steam? What's that? A quick explanation of Steam. The Steam is a digital download uh, store, effectively, and it it does a brilliant job of yeah. serving PC gamers um, throughout the planet. Uh, it's it's not just a digital store. It's not just you know you go and buy stuff by download. The community is very, 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 very vibrant. Um, there is a great, or sometimes not so great, reviewing system, and there's uh, the, there's various tools that players can use and creators can use. All in all, it's the place to go if you want to buy your PC games. They do everything, all of the time, and they do incredible sales. And those sales are reasonably frequent. Mm. Um, interestingly, we're now seeing in 2018 a move by the big games publishers to move away from Steam. So you will see people like Activision, Bethesda, Electronic Arts, Ubisoft, uh, and others not necessarily putting their releases out on Steam. That's their decision. I'm sure it's it's got there's logic to it. Um, but from a gamer's perspective, uh, it means that the one-stop shop as a PC gamer was Steam. It may not now be if you're going to play an EA game or something else, a Bethesda right. game. So for a non-gamer, it's it's kind of Netflix, um, but Warner Brothers are pulling out and Disney have pulled out yeah, and yeah, Paramount yeah. Well, they're, out. They're, they're, let's be careful. They're not pulling out. They've just, I think, started to test whether or not they need to put their game on Steam. So Bethesda <laughs> announced Fallout 76, which is going to be one of the big, big PC games yeah. of this year. Uh, you know, they're not going to put that on Steam. So you're going to have to go and buy that from Bethesda if you okay. want to. And that's fine. That, 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 that's up to them. And I think in a in an age where we can we're one click away from buying what we want, frankly, mm. you know, is it a big deal to have to go somewhere else? Probably not, as long as it's frictionless. Uh, but it's another thing to think about. Anyway, there we go. Uh, You've dropped the word frictionless in, haven't you? Yes, I have. Frictionless, yeah. Fri very important in this day and age. Mm. Um, all of us. I've just been spending the last uh, hour. Uh, well, um, not hour, I think about five minutes switching my mobile phone over. It was frictionless. Um, it surprised me. I was stunned. Um, but that is, uh, so digital for for me was always something that I had had my heart in. And I'm very proud of what Just Flight did um, because we figured it out in the days where no one was even thinking about it. And the reason we figured it out actually was because we made a decision which turned out not to be a mistake, which was the big chain stores had told us that our small little flight sims no one was interested in, in anymore they didn't really want to take so we had no fucking choice but to figure out exactly how we could service our customers and we did it by digital download that wasn't a mistake um, but what was a mistake the mastertronic was believing that i could transition we as a company could transition from physical mm. ostensibly physical goods into fully digital and we failed and we didn't fail overnight, and I wish we had, because we failed over a period of about four years where we could see the light of digital. We had great experience because we had just flight. We, could, we knew what we were doing. The problem was that we didn't, we carried too much cost, too much overhead, too many people, too many people's lives were dependent on Narsotronic. And that's another mistake that I think is easily made as, as a business owner. You think you're responsible for people. Um, you are, but you're not really. Right. They come, they have children, they have families, they, they do their thing. They come to the, to the place of work. And, you know, sometimes as an owner, you think, oh, I need to make sure they're okay and all that stuff. Reality is they're human beings and they'll survive. You don't kind of know that though at the time. And those people with a conscience will think about the, the staff, the team, whatever you want to call them, in front of the bloody harsh reality that this business is heading over a cliff. Right. It's just you can't quite see where that's going to be. And that, that was a mistake. It's a mistake I'll never make again. And it's not like we didn't level with people. We were pretty open. In fact, another mistake could be maybe we were too open about what we were up to.
accident we're up against. Um, people do like certainty, absolutely. And I mean, you're seeing that now with our political system. People want certainty, even if the certainty is simplistic and possibly lies. They want the certainty because when it's complicated, they tune they tune out pretty quickly because their lives are just too busy and they're just too too too, too fraught and stressed in making sure their kids are picked up from school because they haven't got any holiday left or something you know some more crap like that. Mm. Um, so those mistakes are real, but staying in too long was a mistake, and that's kind of I put that down to probably down to me rather than anyone else in the business because I've been brought up never to give up. So, uh, you know, yeah. we brought up never to sort of, you know, make sure that all food on plate is eaten by Mr. Payne. So, you know, it, wherever I was at school or at home, you don't leave anything. As a result... But then you're you confronted by a situation where by the food on your plate is six months old and it's already gone rancid. Yes. Yeah, well, I'm the kind of bloke who think, well, I'm sure we can do something with yeah. that. And it's a mistake. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, and I think it's knowing when to quit. And that is a skill that a lot of people just don't have knowing when to quit plenty of people quit plenty of people don't quit but knowing when you throw the towel in because it's seen to be sort of cowardly or or, or, or something like that you know it's like oh you've got to do better than that yeah. so that that's difficult and i think you kind of get to know yourself i only realized how much myself and my team and the team that i worked with who I, a lot of them i still work with actually in different businesses um, I didn't realise how tough it was until we came out of it. Right. And when it was over, and that was difficult, it was Black Friday, would you believe, uh, three years ago. So it was Black Friday. Oh. Bloody hell, what a fantastic thing. Black Friday, you know, the time when retail bears its ass to anyone who wants to go there, and it killed us. It's the Boxing Day sales <laughs> moved forward. The Boxing Day that's sales, do you remember is. that? It's stuff, the Boxing yeah. Day sales moved forward. Well, we're, we're and that's what killed you. Yeah, well, it didn't. We we died on Black Friday, which yeah. is a certain um, a certain uh, irony there. And actually, uh, in a in a wonderfully binary um, uh, sign, I sat down when we died and thought, how long have we been in business? And it was ten thousand and one days. So there was a binary nature about our death, which I kind of consoled myself mm. after the uh, you know the kind of the failure of failing is a big thing. It's huge, yeah. It's horrible, and people will never talk to you, to you directly about it. They'll talk about you. And a lot of personal you know, relationships, friendships, whatever, compromised by that. Um, it's quite distinctly English as well, because yeah. in America, yeah. I mean, as the old saw goes, in, in America, you fail twice. I mean, your business goes, you, you die twice, and then you come back in. Um, and you, you, because you've learnt from your mistakes, I think yeah. in England, in England, well, in Great Britain, we we conceive of mistakes being failures. They're synonymous. I one hundred percent agree, and I think you look at our national sort of DNA psyche, whatever. And I would take Brexit as a great example of the British, um, and I think the Scots and the Irish would take exception about be or Northern Irish would take exception about being cluttered up in this but the the british sort of ability to think no 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 we're going to carry on with this. this this is the charge of the light brigade we have been given orders talk about mistakes yeah well we have been given orders um and we against the better judgment of our leaders they're looking down a valley going okay so we've been asked to go down there there's guns to the left guns to the right guns ahead of us but we're the finest regiment of horse in the British Army, all 650, armed with mm, sabres and lances and so on. And they're only Russians. And we're British, so let's get on with it, lads. You know, let's, let's charge at the top of our, uh, our voices or whatever we may on our horses. Fifteen minutes later, a bunch of guys are struggling back. Most people are killed. Most of the horses are butchered. And there's a few coming back. And, uh, you know, I always remember the, uh, the film that was made in the 60s which was apparently very left-wing, ho, ho, ho. And it was just a classic at the end. One of the sort of sergeants sort of staggers, you know, he's, he's kind of lost his ear or something, and he goes to the, the, the commanding officer, you know, shall we go again, sir? And it's, this is Brexit. It's like we are being told by facts now, by experts who people like Michael Gove deride, frankly, should be ashamed of himself. 
if ever a man needs to admit a mistake, it's him. Um, and we are being told that, you know, this is not a good thing. We're in trouble. We're in real trouble. But no, we're going to carry on because it's going to be great in 50 years' time or something when a lot of us won't necessarily be around. Um, so, you know, understanding that about our psyche, you know, it can be distressing sometimes. And I, I, I nowadays, I'm much more circumspect about when I say yes to something and when I say no to something. But I'm an optimistic person and I'm a can-do person, you know, whatever that means, but I do stuff. Mm. So yes is more likely than no. Mm. It's just my nature to say yes. When mm. you asked me to come on this podcast, I thought, yes, yeah. why not? Sounds it's great. Lot. I like Tim and I'm sure he'll ask me some tough questions because he usually does. Well, we're going to go down that road any second. But, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, there you go. Mm. Um, in terms of, I want to go back a bit to Mastertronic and yep. the personal um, fallout, the personal lessons learnt from from that. But I mean, I think when in the lead up, you've, you've done a, a good job of saying, like, well, people are involved, but you can't always be um, paternalistic about your staff because your staff are humans as well. Yeah. But when it died. Um, I remember, I think I've talked to you about this anyway in the past. There was a personal toll it took, not just a business. Well, you weren't just out of pocket. You weren't just, no. you know, it wasn't no, no. just a, a reputational problem. Because, you know, why do you say people bitch behind you about they don't bitch to your face? It's the nature of bitching. What, what, how did you get through the personal toll of this, of this mistake, this failure? Well, I think I was quite lucky. Um, aside from all the usual cliches of friends and family, which are not cliches, but well, they're really, cliches for a reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was lucky. I've never done one thing, so I had started in full with full transparency of my Mastertronic business partners, a, a business in in mobile uh, in 2011. So fully, uh, what three four years before we 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 died at Mastertronic, and that business is called Happy Notion. And the second biggest mistake I made was when I started that, I had gone through the process of resigning from Mastertronic, um, but had allowed myself to be talked not into doing that by my own brain of like my own conscience and one of our international shareholders who said to me, look, basically, look, mate, you can't resign because we need you. And I sort of thought, well, that's flattering, but I don't want to, I don't want to be here anymore. I wasn't seeing eye to eye with other partners in the business, but I stayed on and I still regret that. But going fast forward to when I failed, well, that business um, started to get really interesting almost the day I failed. So I was quite lucky that I had an insurance policy, which I didn't realize. Okay. Right. But we'd put a hell of a lot of work in for, for nothing. And we'd learned a lot at, uh, at Happy Nation. We made some really good decisions. And they weren't decisions that necessarily... Well, they were good decisions as judged by now, by time. Um, but they were bloody tough decisions at the time because we had to... It was a collective of six developers digitally publishing in mobile. Mm. And five of the other developers um, in, the, in, the, in the collective really weren't doing very much that made sense to them. And indeed, the collective called Appy Nation. So we bought them out, myself and the other developer that was starting to show traction in the mobile area, which is really difficult. We, we decided to buy them out and we did that. Um, and hopefully everyone felt that it was all fair. Um, I'll never know because they won't tell me. Mm. Um, but since then, we've really focused um, we've absolutely gone after free to play, which a lot of people think is the devil's work. Um, <laughs> I'm looking can, at your face. Andy, in all fairness, it can be the devil's work. Yeah. I mean, if you look I, at, I don't know if it is. I'm looking at, was it, is it, was it Dungeon Master that they remade? Yeah. That used to be a fabulous game. I mean, an absolutely fantastic yeah. Peter Molyneux game. And yeah. it was Fucked by free. I mean, reputationally, yeah. Yeah. fucked by free to play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with you, and I think it's. I think that you know the the current, let's say, uh, dungeon. Sorry, dungeon keeper. Dungeon keeper. Yes, yeah. the dungeon dun, dungeon keeper was uh, bullfrog, and dungeon master was faster than light. I think, or yeah. it, it was one of those. Anyway, um, but the 
yeah, the free to play market, we, we kind of decided to absolutely double down on that. And no matter what, no matter the advice that we'd had from some of the platforms, mm. you know, that's Amazon, Apple and Google for mm. those that don't know. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're in a really good place right now. But it's, it's so, razors so, and razor blades though, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's not exactly an ancient business model, <laughs> um, free to play. It's razors and razor blades. Um, uh, yeah, it is. I think you've got to make sure that you, that people want to shave in the first place though. Oh, yeah, but obviously you're only sell- selling it to people who want to shave, like yeah. yourself. Um, um, it is. It is. Um, I think that getting back to your original question, though, that helped an awful lot because mm-hmm. I died at Mastertronic, but I was living at Happy Nation. Right. And I think that is probably exceptional, as in most people failing business and then go, shit, what am I going to do now? I don't really have time to think. Right. Um, but I've never done one thing. That's another thing that I I can't work out whether it's a mistake yet or not, whether to do multiple things mm. um, or not. It, I, it leads to a very busy working life, and it leads to most of the things I do not actually getting any, you know, financial payment for. Right. I tend to do a lot of things on speculation or because I want to, or someone asks for my help and they can't afford to pay, or they won't pay, and I'm I'm happy with that. Oh. Um, that only comes because I have got a business called Happy Nation that at the moment is pretty successful mm. and allows me that. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm blessed really in that respect. Uh, okay. But this is, this is all part of that journey where you don't really know where any stuff's going to end. No. Um, none of us know. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take, I'm going to take the opportunity now. And again, this is now going to be aimed at people who, um, aren't particularly con- involved in video games. They know about video games. You know, they play Minesweeper and they play... Uh, but they've be, been, been being told about how big the games industry is, and it is. I mean, I've been involved in it since 88, and I know how big it is. So I'm going to take the opportunity now to just to ask you, what mistakes currently is games and gaming culture, are games and gaming culture? Well, not even currently. Over the period you've been involved, what what mistakes have they has it been making, or is it making? Okay, um, I think at the moment uh, where we are in two thousand and eighteen is very similar, actually, in a kind of circular way, mm. cyclical way, I suppose, to back in the day in the eight bit days. So that's going back to the early eighties. the The skills required to make compelling video games games that people want to play okay and we can define that if we want to but let's just say for a minute a game that people want some people want to play the skills required are still pretty high but actually the engineering is helped by a ton of software you know middleware whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. so actually what's quite nice about the environment at the moment is that you don't have to be necessarily the world's greatest coder to make the world's greatest game. It helps. And most of the really, well, most of the great coders are still, who are involved in games, are still involved in games. But that may be legacy. That may just be because they know nothing else and don't want to do anything else. But today, it's a lot easier to make stuff faster mm-hmm. than it used to be. Uh, that leads to an enormous amount of talented people globally making really great stuff all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. So today, it's not about getting your game made. It's about getting your game played. And is it even is it even that? Is it not? And again, I'm going to drag you back to the question, which was about yeah. mistakes being made, because um, we've take, taken a swerve on that, and we've come up with how many great games there are. But isn't it about discoverability right now? Let alone before you even get to playing them. Is yeah, but I'm, assu- I'm assuming I'm assuming that you've discovered it in order to play it. It's so I'm probably I've probably missed out. Yeah. I, discoverability is really important but discoverability assumes that you've got a a great game in the first place and that's in the eye of the beholder um we are seeing (laughs) it's an argument as an old video games journalist i i I just go back to rise of the robots which was a deeply deeply discovered game i worked on that packaging and that manufacturing Uh um uh that and they also that same company followed up with a game called humans Mm. You remember that? Was, yeah. Both of them were abysmal. <laughs> I know. Um, but they were deeply, deeply discoverable because the PR job done on them was absolutely outrageously good. Yeah, yeah. And those 
the people that worked on that particular title uh, all gone on to make great careers in games. They're still in games. I know them all. And they're still doing an amazing job. We won't mention them, but they're doing an amazing job. They did an, a fantastic job of PR. But we're in a world now where the PR is is questionable. It's more about getting people hands-on with your game and then those players telling their friends and their communities that this is really cool and we should play it. And that extends out into the YouTubers, streamers, who are the, you know, aka the influencers. Um, whereas probably the games journalists like you, Tim, were the influencers back in the day. People respected your opinion. That's less so now. Not Not because your opinions aren't respected. It's just that the way people discover and follow is much more kind of DJ culture, uh, if you will. Um, and I think that's so, so, so right now there's mistakes being made all over the place because one of the mistakes is, do, are you setting yourself up to try and make your living and by living a fortune people, most people just want to go straight into, I want to make a load of money yeah. and be really famous by making games or are you setting it up as a, a perhaps a musician would and say, look, I like to play my music. I like to play my games. I'd like to get some money for it. And if I can make enough to raise a family, you know, maybe buy a house, whatever, that's great. A lot of games developers go in for the right reasons and they might even go in early through college courses, university courses, etc. And most really talented ones have kind of made their own games, you know, on the app store at, 12 or 13 years old, that sort of thing. Um, but there's a lot of people, um, and I can't, you can't judge them, they just want to be famous and make a load of money and think gaming's massive. Hey, I'm jumping in on it. Um, you know, I think you have to be realistic about these things. If you're not prepared to put the work in um, and make stuff that people really want to play, mm. you're kind of probably barking up the tree commercially. Um, there's, a, there's a really good single developer called Cliff Harris, Positech Games. Yeah, really remarkable. Now Cliff's Cliff's old school. He, he you know he won't he won't thank me for saying this. He's a hardcore programmer. He's a hardcore bloke actually. Yeah, fact, He's very yeah. much an individual. Um, when he does talks at conferences, anyone who cares to listen, I say you should go and watch what he says. Go and watch him. Go and listen to him and take note. You know he he views it as you know, it's like being a professional soldier. You better be good be, and you better work hard and you better have the right equipment and you better take care of it and you better fucking keep working because if you don't, someone's going to come and do you. And that's Cliff's view. Now, you know, it's not for everybody. Cliff, Cliff's come up with um, democracy, hasn't he? Yes, he has. Right. Sorry, yeah. that to, to listeners again, not familiar with video games who stuck with us. Um, I didn't mean Cliff invented democracy. He's not that old. He's come up with a, a remarkable game called democracy um which leads me which leads me actually into the a question i think i really would like to have asked you over the years so i'm going to ask you now i remember going to a, a lecture um years ago in islington at the design center when there was a ces i think it was in islington ects ects and it was, I can't remember the guy's name now, American guy, had been at EA, left, and, and was, was doing basically a lecture about video games industries like Hollywood. Trip it's like the film. Trip Hawkins, were you there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we need to uh, think in terms of those, you know, those ideas. And, and it just wasn't. It, no. It wasn't. It was obviously. But that infected a whole bunch of interviews I did afterwards with various other people going. So... How, how do you feel that video games being around 40 years, apparently, okay, yeah, is still incredibly an immature industry? Yeah, it's making I mean... shitloads of money. But <laughs> if you talk about the film industry, you can talk about anything from um, the current Marvel shovelware of uh, superhero movies. Yeah. But you can also go back to some sort of, you know, independent... Um, movie made by about 10 people that goes to Sundar. You can't do that with gaming yet. I don't think you can go right at the moment. I don't think it's been nurtured to the extent whereby you can go, well, it's serious and it's trash. Um, I, I think I might disagree. Um, I, hope so. I think I, I think that, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the analogy between video games and Hollywood and it's just like film, it's not. As you're absolutely right. It's not. Games are, frankly, they're more than film 
because they're interactive. So they're like a book meets a film where you're, you're generally driving it. You're not driving it absolutely yet because you can't in a way that you don't drive a book absolutely because you're being guided by the author. Yeah. But games are becoming much looser now and becoming much more open world, let's say, where you've got more choices. We're in a world now with games which is unprecedented in terms of storytelling and entertainment for the human race, and it's complicated. Um, okay. I've, I've yeah. heard this, uh, and fortunately I've been out of the industry now for a couple of years, <laughs> failing at making a bakery. I've heard this, and I still don't believe it. I still, I still don't believe, and I think it's an, it's, it's some, it's a dead end for gaming. This notion that you know, it can do more with gaming than anything else, more than still with storytelling than anything else. But, I mean, Ian Livingston, for example, made a really good point at a lecture he gave in York some time ago about being one of the great greatest storytelling video games of all time was Pac-Man, because you invested the whole thing with the story. Same with Space Invaders. Same with mm. Galaxian. Same with Missile Command. You know, you invested the, that story. You, your imagination gave that story. Everything else that came after that, and I'm being deliberately hyperbolic, uh, <laughs> everything else that came after that is as author-led as the Noddy stories or um, Tom and Jerry. You know, they, 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 they're all author-led, which is why I have I had a disagreement with you last year about a game that you're you're very close to at the moment yes which indeed. We, we'll, we'll deal with it another time and i'm quite happy to be proved wrong but i think this is i think this is a mistake that the games industry is making in that it feels the need to wear other in the clothes of other industries or the clothes of other cultural phenomena it feels the need to be the best storyteller you know to be the storytelling device of and it just, to me, it just isn't. I mean, how are you just finding that with the game that you're currently working on, if you're able to talk about that? Well, I don't disagree with what you said at all. I think games are different from film and from uh, from film slash TV yeah. and books. I think they're different. There are, you know, if we start getting Venn diagrams out, <laughs> you know, there will be crossover in areas. Absolutely. Um but, you know, the storytelling in Candy Crush Saga, you know, one of the most successful games, if you if you look at revenues and profit yeah. of the last five years, the storytelling there isn't very much. It's a puzzle. Yeah. It, that's it. It's Absolutely. a puzzle. There isn't any story, frankly. In fact, any attempt to try and make that have character, you know, by having cute little things pipping up, telling mm -hmm. you a score and this sort of thing, yeah. get in the way. They're just literally, they are candy, eye candy. So I think that playing games... But you can say the same with Connect 4. I mean, that's just the nature yeah. of gaming. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so do all games have to have story? No. No. Do all games have to allow the, the player, you know, endless opportunities and choices? No. But some do, and some are getting better at it. Uh, right. Yeah, now that's different. Uh, some are yeah. getting better at it, it's certainly... So, some actually are... Arguable. Really <laughs> yeah, so some are really horrible. Um, and, and are, I mean, I think, I think it would be fair to say sweeping statement time, watch out everybody, the, <laughs> the narrative in games and the character and story sometimes has been lit. I mean, really is pretty appalling. Mm. It, it's getting better, but I think the games industry admits that it requires skills from other storytelling industries like film, um, scripting and so on. Does it also make... require, does it also need the injection of other perspectives from women, from people who aren't white blokes, from yeah, def disabled people? Because yeah. this to me has been one of the vastest problems with gaming, yeah. which I, you yeah. know, and I keep going knocking it, but I mean, I made a good living from gaming and I, I'm a lot, lot of good friends in gaming. And I think it's a valid cultural form. But I think one of the massive mistakes it made and continues to make is its treatment of not white blokes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it's I think it's becoming more diverse and it's slow, and I think that's a problem. And game the games industry has probably got the best chance of being as diverse as as you can be than any other entertainment industry because it's younger and the and the access to the tools 
to make things is as universal, probably, as making your own stuff on YouTube. Okay. Um, so I think, so, so actually, hang on, I, now I've just said that, I think actually this is about access to to communities, yeah, the markets, if you want to call people markets. YouTube has allowed anyone to do whatever they want and, you know, to stare into a screen and have an audience of zero or considerably more than zero. Mm. So, and I think that allows accessibility. Um but then you've got the kind of sort of unconscious bias of the viewers and it starts to get complicated. But I think that YouTube has been an incredible enabler for everybody to be able to express what they're doing. Um, because you can, you can do it. Whether there's anyone watching it is a different thing. Yes, yeah, so there's no, frankly no difference between that and standing in the middle of Asda and screaming. In fact, there is. You'll get more of an audience standing in the middle of Asda screaming. Um, in, in terms of game making, though, surely with its youth, game making should be leaps and bounds in front of something like Hollywood, which has had how many Best Female Director Oscars? Yeah, very few. Zero, is it? Yeah, no, I think... Um, no, I think they had... Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know, but it's, 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 it's alarmingly low. Yeah, so yes. I mean, why isn't video games? Um, why aren't video games leaps and bounds ahead in terms of diversity and in terms of? Uh, good question. I think things are changing, but I'll always say they're not changing fast enough. Right. I think that female talent specifically is being alerted to and alerting itself to games making. There are more females in the games industry today than there were last week and mm. uh, certainly five years ago. And we don't, I believe from the research that's being done, and it's a lot of it's anecdotal, is that we're not losing talent, you know, because because they're getting, you know, just not getting the breaks or whatever. Right. Uh, less permission required in games making, I think, generally, and it's less of a paternalistic uh, industry, um, in my view. Um, but I think historically it was always, uh, you know, boys amazing amount of brothers that were successful yeah. in video game making yeah and and that was as simple as sometimes like you know 18 months difference in their lives in terms of years one was an artist one was a bit more math mathsy and together they made stuff there's i think there's over 20 sets of you of, of british brothers who've been successful in video games so god knows how many there are on the planet but anyway i digress i think the games industry is becoming more diverse but you know until it's absolutely 50 mm 50 -hmm. <laughs> in terms of gender split or uh, yeah let's not go there for now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I mean interestingly so the just as an aside um a bunch of people led by and set up the british games institute in order to bring more public money into the games industry for cultural awareness and from the get-go the advisory board was large and it was 50-50 male and female. Mm -hmm. So there's an example of something that's happened uh, and it's deliberate and it, and that's right. That's the way it should be. Good. Uh, and it's also not a bunch of older people. There are some older heads on there, in Livingston being one, um, but there's plenty of young heads there. So I think there has to be a conscious effort to make this stuff happen at representative level. Um, but I think also in terms of the creativity options, teaching, making the, making the opportunity, making kids aware of the opportunities is what we need to do and we need to do more of. Um, but we are doing it. Um, maybe right, Andy, we, we've yeah. nearly done our time okay. um, for this round because inevitably I think I'm going to head down there and we're going to end up in a pub doing this for about three days. <laughs> we probably would do. Um, I know there's one thing right now, apart from the game that you're working on, um, that I know you're working on, that you're a little bit passionate about. Would Would you like in the last like five minutes just to outline why Brexit is going to be such a huge success and not a mistake at all? Okay. Um, I'm going to struggle with that one because I don't think Brexit is going to be a success at all for anybody in the UK right now, uh, at least for five or ten years. And I, and I think, you know, we could be pedantic and define success. The economic arguments are now by the people who are fa who favoured Brexit, the people like Johnson, Gove, Farage, Grayling, blah, blah, blah. 
They've now said, no, it's never about economics. It was never about jobs and prosperity. It was about sovereignty. It was about the feeling of taking back control of your country. Well, last weekend, thick end of 670,000 people uh, did a great job of unity and a great job of taking control of their lives and a great job of extolling the virtues of internationalism and working together. In the games industry specifically, we're, we're a global games community and we have been from the get-go. It is absurd to start to talk about glorious isolation as if that's going to solve problems. We have to talk more, we have to work more, we have to live and love more. And the within the games industry, it's been vibrant. I think most UK games companies have 30 to 40% of their staff are non-British by birth. That's, that's amazing. We talked about diversity a minute ago. That's just astonishing. The economic arguments have, have kind of worn out. They're worn out. It's going to be economically challenging, especially if we have no deal. But the bit that you don't have on the spreadsheet is mood. Um, and it saddens me that wherever I, I travel internationally a lot for games, and everywhere I go, people say, what's going on? What are you guys? We used to think you guys were the ones that, you know, were the, 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 the outward looking, outward thinking, you know, country that had gone out of its way to be multicultural. I make no doubt, you know, I make no bones about that. We'll welcome people from all over the world, which we do, we do, we do all the time. And, you know, we're running out of young people. So we need some, some of them anyway. I, I don't buy this business of who's going to pick the fruit. Fuck it. I don't care who picks the fruit. What I want to make sure is, you know, who's going to build civil society? And it's going to be a mixture of all of us. And it needs hearts and minds and it needs openness. It needs a spirit of, of, of building things together. And I think in games, we've had an amazing, the games industry has never known anything outside of the European Union, frankly. So, you know, I, I remember when, when, when the single market came into force we didn't really know much about it it's a bit like passing my 11 plus i never even knew i took the fucking thing um but we, we we went into the single market and actually frictionless trade has been really really important to us in the games industry we're not the car industry boy do they need frictionless trade and when these people who don't want to talk about economics anymore talk about you know free trade deals canada plus 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 i mean it's like a sort of we're being talked in a stupid language nobody understands. All of that is bullshit because we had a really good deal. If we tried to negotiate to join the EU on the terms we've got at the moment, we would not be able to do it. Mm. And we have got a prime minister that I think is, I take my hat off to her in terms of staying in there, but she doesn't believe it. And I think she spent two years realising now that the civil service quite rightly have been saying to her, be very, very careful what you wish for. And as she goes out and reaches out to industry and has the Japanese car manufacturers who've been here in Britain, loyal, you know, uh, loyal compadres since the 80s, you know, the Prime Minister knows this is, this is, a, this, this is why the Chequers deal was put up. This is disaster, total disaster. And if it falls on Ireland, so be it. I mean, it'd be, you know, that, that'd be ironic, wouldn't it? Um, so I think overall for the games industry, it's a total disaster. And actually, you know, our research, I'm involved in a, pressure group called games for eu and we have written a with legal minds we've written a 35 page document that we're going to be publishing this week which says if you're a uk company exclusively you're going to need in the event of a no deal which you know is even money right now you're going to need to open up a uh, an office in the eu mm -hmm. and that means that we will have to make those contingency plans whether the deal happens or not and it's sad because it means we're going to have to think about where we where we work or where our work is taxed, actually. And, and it, without the taxation um, that our companies, our successful companies pay, uh, corporate taxation, without that, we cannot pay for the public services that this country desperately needs. So Brexit, there is no there is no dividend. There is no, nothing about it that's good, in my view. And people say to me, you're biased. You've never changed your mind. You know what? I said right at the beginning, I sometimes stay in too long. You can't stay in the EU too long, man. Oh, Andy, Andy what, what we're going to do, if I'm still around and haven't... March, April the 1st next year, let's come back and review this. Yes. <laughs> and see... I'd love to. You know, I'd love to. After the great Brexit 
party that everyone's going to yeah. have with well, the street my, my, birth, my birthday is the 28th of March, and the day later, my birthday present is we leave the EU. Farewell. Uh, but, mate, we're going to have to wrap this you. up. Um, we could do this for a long, long time. I actually hope West Ham do well this season. <laughs> so I do really I. Do. Despite uh, the owners. Oh, despite the it, owners. It's, it's our club, not theirs. A bit like this country. Here you go. We'll end on that. <laughs> Andy Payne, uh, <laughs> video game guru and sage. Thanks so much as usual, Andy. Absolutely my pleasure, Tim. It's been great. And I uh, love the beard, by the way. I th- I've, I've heard they're all the, all the fashion. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andy. Um, the, as usual, thought-provoking, uh, interesting, open and honest. Everything you'd expect from Andy Payne if you knew him. Which you do now a little bit, which is one of the points of this podcast. This, as I say, is the final episode of this series, or season, depending where you are in the world, or how old you are. The new one, the next series, will be coming out in the new year of 2019 and in that series i will continue the uh, special with episode two of that so if you've been uh, intrigued to hear what happens next keep your subscription up to date before i go i need to thank every single guest who's appeared because they have been fantastic to a woman and man Uh, Open, honest, interesting, affecting, knowledgeable. I couldn't have wanted for more. I really couldn't. And I'd also like to help the people who are helping me out on uh, Patreon and via your PayPal donations. Um, If you can keep those up, that'd be great. Then I can keep going. Uh, Zuzu's Bakery. If you've got uh, anything you'd like to talk about, bread at zuzusbakery.co.uk or if you just like a chat on Twitter Zuzu's Bakery so for now, until series 2 I'm Tim Smith, thank you so much for listening and I hope you continue to do so, bye bye